0: The first moment of launching out into the silence is always always feels really weird to me. you know really, it's just then it gets going. What am I saying? What I want to talk about tonight, um, I guess a general thing is we've been talking so much about the steadiness of awareness and the importance of continuing steady uh, awareness with wisdom to recognize all the kalatia, all the habits of mind that cause suffering. So of course I'll have to put that in. Don't think you're getting away without that. But what I want to um, emphasize more tonight is how that wisdom feeds and strengthens wholesome states. And just want to Um, mention a few, how how this actually, one way that this occurs, there's many ways, and really as a way of um, encouraging and emphasizing also the recognition with the awareness of the wholesome states as well. I mean, theoretically, that shouldn't be necessary since you're all just, from morning to night, committed to steady awareness and everything that arises and passes you notice. So you equally notice the wholesome with the unwholesome, correct? (laughs) No. Once a day, there's a wholesome, and the rest of the day, but that's about how it is. Yeah, I noticed, but no. But So so, so anyway, the focus here. So a couple of, of reasons I, w- I want to mention it. One is that what I just said... So because we we talk so much and we start to really explore the suffering habits that arise in the chitta in the heart, which is essential, so sometimes it actually happens that even though we 've been resisting them forever we our, our our habit of mind in the retreat gets a little too overfocused. not overfocused, but we do get into another habit of mind that just doesn 't really quite recognize the wholesome or bring full awareness into it and inhabit it with the same confidence with which we inhabit greed and hatred. (laughs) Certainly we may not have the same trust or the same personal feeling that it's mine, but recognize it. Another thing is sometimes um, on retreat at different times, people will feel that we're getting so involved in all the minutia and all the little stuff that it just seems to... It doesn't really, but it seems to feed just this obsession with me, 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 and my stories, my this and my that, you know, and it just seems like I'm more self involved than ever. And another um, kind of doubt that can come up at times is this is great, I'm really learning a lot, but it seems so uh, subtle and esoteric, so supported by the silence and separateness of a retreat. What does it have to do? with daily life, noticing the little subtle movements of greed when I look at the person walking next to me. What does that have to do with daily life? The answer, of course, is everything. (laughs) Everything. But So those are just maybe some reasons I'm planting in the mind that what I talk about may or may not have anything to do with you, but I'm thinking it does. (laughs) So really what I want to talk about, we've talked about right view, wise understanding. It's the first step in the Noble Eightfold Path, the Buddha, the fourth of the Four Noble Truths, the way of living, the way of practice to cultivate and deepen awareness wisdom. Right view, we've talked about that, right? You've noticed we talked about that. (laughs) The second step of the Eightfold Path is Samasankapa, which is variously translated as right thought, right intention. Right motivation. So what? I, and we've been talking some about noticing the motivation, that impulse in the heart, the mind, before moving. So that's really what I want to talk about tonight: Sama Sankapa. right? Attention, right? Um, motivation. This is from the Dalai Lama. Just because a few people have also been saying, this, this sort of like this is something uh, nobody actually said. This. This is my point. Is this okay, this is great, something Utejaniya made up, but is it, you know, is it really, is it really enough? Does it really so just to say it's not like this is completely separate and it doesn't say the same things as great Buddhist teachers, other Dalai Lama. Buddhism essentially consists of two things: the view, which means a definitive understanding of the interdependence of all things and action, which can be loosely defined as nonviolence. The view and action. So the second step of the Eightfold Path, wise thought, wise motivation, is what is the key, the impulse, the link to action. Right speech, right thought, right livelihood, which are the next steps in the path. So this intention is it's crucial, it's key. The Buddha was very clear, and I, I think I read a quotation to the similar effect at one of my other talks. The awakened mind, the awakened heart shows up, it manifests in our actions it's from the Buddha. A fool is characterized by his or her actions. A wise person is characterized by his or her actions. It is through the activities of one's life that one's wisdom, that one's discernment shines. Mm -hmm. And as I say, he says this over and over, so the actions are the inevitable effect, result, manifestation, of whatever quality, whatever attitude, as we could say, is in the mind, in the moment, that that impulse to speak, to act, arises. Extremely clear. And so, it's a profound aspiration, I feel, to even begin to hold the aspiration to to really purify, to transform the habits of our heart and mind, the habits of consciousness, that un, unrecognized, unthinking, keep leading us into wanting and aversion and more confusion and suffering. It's a profound and, to me, really beautiful aspiration. But we can't do it as an act of personal will. And we've said that a lot because how, what do we know? How do we know to act from? We don't quite tune into the awareness. We try to get rid of greed by aversion, right? Right? We try to get rid of aversion by greed. Let me feel loving kindness. You know, it's and we're thinking. We're trying to think our way in, and we may mean well, but we don't know what's going on. We don't have the tools. It's not something we can just personally wish. So this is where this key, this second step, this understanding, the uh, how to recognize motivation and what attitude in the mind. That's what we've been training. Is colors it. But also, what's really quite wonderful is that in the light of wisdom, in the light of steady awareness as wisdom comes, the natural effect of wisdom is that these habits, these unwholesome habits, begin to naturally transform. And so I'll talk, that's, that's the, the, the specifics that the Buddha talks about in Samasankapa. But it's like, it's far out. So talk a little about that. It really is. So, you've all seen now how when we don't recognize what particular quality in the mind, Kalesha, let's say, the habits, the, the unwholesome, or as Steve was saying the other night, dangerous habits, when we don't recognize their present, they drive the bus, right? Sometimes even when we do recognize, but at least awareness is going along, and that's a significant difference, which I'll get to in a minute, but... They don't. So do you know, even with good intentions, we have a really clear sense. I want to be more kind, or I'm not going to eat this harmful food, or and we really mean it. We're totally sincere, and we absolutely can't do it. You know, and we don't know why. You know, I remember, uh, and this was on a um, in one group with Utejnia some years ago. It was a perfect description of a woman was saying a, a long-term meditator. You know, she was had a certain food that she was really allergic to, it made her real It wasn't just, I don't want it, but she liked it. So she's coming into the dining room at the meditation center in Barry, which has a big uh, blackboard saying what the, the meal's gonna be. So she came in and saw that up there, and her mind, she saw the wanting, aware of the wanting, but then her mind said, no, I'm not going to eat this out of compassion for myself. She said, so that's wisdom, she said. But then she said she went and sat down and took it and ate it. She said, so, <laughs> so how come? So she's saying to Uteshudiya, how come? There was this wisdom, but I didn't act on it. And he said in his way, well, superficial wisdom, real and deep kalatia. <laughs> it's like that, right? That moment of, of, of wisdom, I'm not going to do it because it's harmful to me. That is a moment of wisdom. A moment, that's the key. <laughs> that's the key here. The <laughs> so mind moments are arising and passing really quickly. So we tend to, without recognizing, oh, I'm not going to do it. And we stop looking, hence the emphasis on steadiness of awareness. And we notice, don't notice, all the moments of greed that are run in the show. I guess you can relate. You, people don't laugh if they can't relate. <laughs> right. So that's why it takes a real kind of... Um, Seeing that is helpful, seeing all the different things in ourselves and in our life, because it can, at least for me, if you don't go drown in self-judgment, which is, of course, just flipping to aversion, but really say, oh, wow, look how strong this habit is. Let me recommit to awareness. Of course, that requires some sense of verified faith, some sense of confidence that there's actually, this works somehow. But, so, but by this time, by the, by the she, anyway, did. <laughs> Whether you guys do or not, I don't know. But... So, it's, it's really... Uh, the key is in recognizing what's the motivation for action. So, you know, as the, the Buddha said in the Dhammapada, the famous verse, the very beginning, the mind is the forerunner of all things. Speak or act with an impure mind, and suffering follows you like the wheel follows the hoof of the ox that draws the cart. Mind is the forerunner of all things, speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness follows like a shadow that never leaves you. Key here is mind is the forerunner of all things. And so when the Buddha speaks about um, this impulse of intention, cetana, impulse, that this I think Steve described it's it's really like an impulse, you know, that leads to, we can notice it leading to speech and action, right? And often we just feel the impulse and we just notice the thought, I want to do, like, like this friend, I want to not eat this, and not noticing Because it can be subtle, all the impulses and the wanting, the greed that was coming with those impulses. So, as the Buddha describes what makes action wholesome or unwholesome, our tendency is to evaluate it by the result, right? Or how it looks, or did it get what it wanted? But it's absolutely not the case in terms of the way the Buddha understands the world and what's really supportive for us to see both the qualities of the pure heart and mind, and how that manifests, and how the impure manifest, is that the intention is really the, the heart, the seed of action. The quality that's together with that impulse in the heart and mind in a particular moment that motivates the action. So the exact same action looking from the outside could be motivated by a whole slew of different things. Because when you look at it, we, can't, we don't actually control the results of action, do we? We could do something that really, if you tune it, it's felt from, from kindness. We're really trying to help someone, but we don't have the big picture, you know? So maybe there's been delusion. We projected some whole story onto how unhappy that person is that wasn't true at all to begin with. That's big delusion. But maybe we even saw something accurately and we try to help, but what they really needed was just to be left alone. That kind of... That's a simple thing. Or um, speaking. I use speaking as an example a lot. Because say you have something a little difficult to communicate to someone, but you're not doing it in anger. And you really, uh, when you're clear, you get in touch with this sense of caring, of kindness, because you know this little thing they do is really bringing a lot of negativity their way from other people. You want to help them. Well, you can already surmise the various kinds of motivations and tensions that could give rise to the exact same languaging, right? So if you're really clear with yourself, you could do it quite from loving kindness. You're really... But you didn't check out what was going on with them, and they just staggered home from the end of a most really stressful day, and they're just, you know... At, at the end of their rope, and you decide to give them this really loving feedback, and it's just, you know, not able to hear it. So it's a kind of uh, not, not getting the big picture. Or, you know, we, we've practiced being loving, but in the moment, that's really not. <laughs> Let me tell you this for your own good and for the good of all beings, you know, and all various other things. The words are the same. How it's received, even when you do it with loving kindness, and it seems like an appropriate time, it's completely out of our control or even knowledge how that person is going to hear and how they're going to receive it. So as the Buddha saying saying, the, the key, the heart of action of the intention, of the motivation, is what's the quality in the heart-mind that that action is springing from? And this is the place that is so cool that I was talking about. Because in the light of steady awareness that allows wisdom to recognize accurately what's going on, which is what we've been doing, the motivations of begin to naturally transform. And this is what the Buddha called uh, sama sankhapa. In particular, what he mentions, and I'll read a little from a sutta, but in particular he mentions the motivation or just the thoughts, he's saying the thought of uh, sense-desire, greed, Transforms to the motivation of renunciation, and from that to generosity. That of ill will transforms to—it's not ill will, but to to meta to friendliness and cruelty. Another aspect of hatred to compassion. You'll notice he doesn't say thoughts of delusion transform to wisdom, because as as we've said before, it, it that's not a matter of, you know, personal intention or thought. That's a matter of long, clear seeing that allows for the wisdom to arise. So, but, but these are plenty to work with in terms of wholesomeness and really experiencing consciously and the happiness of it. So, of course, we start with the steady awareness that's noticing how and how frequently the unwholesome, the difficult habits of mind are kind of the fallback mode and how sometimes really obviously, but sometimes how subtly or suddenly they really can become the motivation for action. And sometimes for me, what helps, what really inspires me to, to keep having the willingness to open to this to look at it with interest, not with oh my god, more aversion, but like, right, I really want to see it. I think I I said maybe I said in one group when I was on a retreat a while ago. I was doing some walking meditation, and uh, a pretty pretty calm, um, clear state. I wasn't liking a lot of aversion. The mind was calm. And there was quite some some wisdom, some happiness, all of that. And just, then just some blah-blah came in my mind, thinking about uh, some email I was going to answer and what I would say, a little, like, funny answer, and went on. But then I thought, wait a minute. And I saw in that little funny answer that had come up, which is just, I could just dismiss, it was nothing, no suffering, gone on to the next thing, calm. But in that little funny answer, there was just the teensiest bit of aversion. You know, because humor definitely can... And I'm from New York, it's even more... But it can definitely, but it wasn't like really, you know, harmful or anything, but it was just a little tweak of aversion and gone. And I could see my mind go, well, that's okay. You know, that's no big deal. It's not hurting anyone. I go, wait a minute. It's not a big deal. But the more we practice, the more the steadiness of awareness comes, the more the wisdom comes, the less, it's not okay. And this wasn't, an, this wasn't like an aversive judgment. This was actually inspirational to me. I so, said, oh, okay. That's aversion I really want to see when aversion arises in the mind, when greed arises in the mind. Because for me, it's my aspiration, it's not okay, really. It's okay, it's a little bit aversive, and maybe they even missed it, they won't even know, you know, they'll think it's funny too, but I can feel, you can feel, you know, we're learning how to feel, how aversion feels, that separation, that contraction, that same with greed, you know, same with delusion, you start to feel it. Okay, really, the danger of it is that it blocks freedom. The danger of it, it's not just that it doesn't feel good, the danger of it is even that the subtle aversion, one can't see, as the Buddha said with aversion, one's own good or the good of another or the good of both. One doesn't recognize the pure nature of heart-mind with even the littlest bit. So... But that, you know, to look in that way needs to come with balanced awareness, not when you're already spinning in self-hatred, right? But I think you get a sense what I mean, and it was inspiring to me. It's like, right, keep going, kid, keep going. It's not, not just settling for good enough. So that's one way I get inspired. Another way is just from, from noticing other little ways it comes up. You know, if I'm walking in the city and I, and I see a homeless person begging and I go in the other direction because I feel awkward. Let myself feel that. Let myself feel it. And then, you know, just like here, you go or you don't go, you do whatever you do, but you bring awareness along with you. You bring it along with you. Or paying attention to things in the world, to people in the world. There's um, I've used this in talks before, but on the radio, a few, I don't know, three or four years ago, came in the middle of some interview on uh, public radio. I didn't know even who they were talking to. But it was, it was somebody who was doing some kind of social uh, research in prisons and had been talking to uh, young, young men, I think, in prisons' long-term incarceration for violent crimes. I didn't know any more details than that. But the, the person interviewed was describing this one interview he'd had with this young man, who was, I, I, I don't know what violent crime, is. something very serious and, and very young and in, in for life, basically, right? And he said, you know, the guy in prison, I just wish I had back that five to ten seconds where, you know, basically, the greed or the he didn't say it quite in our language, but I wish I had back that five to ten seconds where I did that violent act. Mm-hmm. And that just, like, because we all know, how even when we have quite some tuning in to what are the habits in our mind, given the conditions and we haven't been paying attention or something strong enough triggers us, boom, they just can come shooting up. And without, you know, enough self-knowledge and without enough um, care in, in the mind in terms of our behavior in action or recognizing motivations, five or ten seconds is enough to ruin yours and somebody else's life. So stuff like that will really re-motivate me. And you can, you know, see it anywhere. You can see it anywhere. So this is where we start to see for ourselves, what do we really trust? You know, again, we've said this a lot. What is your refuge? So for that young man, whatever was going on, anger-violence seemed like the only safe or the only refuge response of what had been practiced. So, here, starting to recognize, we've been talking about awareness as a refuge, but now I want to talk about the three um, wise intentions, motivations, because as we learn to feel and recognize, see how they arise, know how they feel, inhabit them just as fully as we inhabit the unwholesome qualities, this will also strengthen the wisdom, which will strengthen the confidence, the faith, which is, uh, gives us the energy and the willingness to keep on being mindful and stabilize the mind, and it strengthens wisdom. Those are the five spiritual faculties that Steve's going to talk about last night, so don't worry, I'm not going to say much more about them. <laughs> so, these three naturally transform in the light of steady wisdom and awareness. Read from the Buddha. He's talking about here before my self-awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva. I love it. There's not that many suttas where he's talking about what his mind was like before he was awakened. It's still pretty far along, okay? <laughs> but anyway, this is a very famous sutta, the two sorts of thinking. I'm just read just a few lines of it. So he says, he's, as I was practicing, as I w- remained heedful, a way of uh, mindfulness, aware, ardent, energized, and resolute, thinking filled with sense desire arose in me. I discerned that this had arisen in me. Just mindfulness, right? Go, oh my God, thinking with sense desire, what am I going to do? Oh, I discerned that thinking with sense desire had arisen in me. I saw that it leads to my own affliction, as I noticed it leads to my own affliction, it subsided. As I noticed that it leads to the affliction of others, it subsided. As I noticed that it leads to the affliction of both, it subsided. As I noticed it obstructs discernment, which is the word he's using here for wisdom, it promotes vexation and it does not lead to liberation, it subsided. You get to say, he's just doing what we're doing, watching it, seeing how it functions. It promotes vexation. It leads to my own affliction and the affliction of others. He's seeing that in himself, and through the steady awareness, it subsides. The same with thinking imbued with ill will arose in me. Exactly the same thing. Thinking imbued with harmfulness arose in me. Exactly the same thing. And then, he said, as he kept on, "Oh, whatever a person keeps pursuing with his thinking and pondering, that becomes the inclination of his awareness, right? So we've seen that. That's the habit. Think about it all the time. It's like a rut. It's like a rut in emptiness. I don't know where the rut is, but somehow it keeps on feeding. That's what arises. It gets easy. So, if one keeps pursuing thinking... And by thinking here, it's also motivation leading to action. Imbued with sense desire, that's how it's going to go. With ill will, with harmfulness, that's going to be the easy response that leads to speech and action. Then he goes, as I remained thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, thinking imbued with renunciation arose in me. I discerned that this had arisen in me and that it leads neither to my own affliction nor to the affliction of others nor to the affliction of both. It fosters (coughs) wisdom, discernment, clear seeing. It promotes lack of vexation and it leads to liberation. If I were to think and ponder in line with that renunciation, even for a night, even for a day, even for a day and a night, I do not envision any danger that would come from it, except that thinking and pondering a long time would tire the body. I mean he's like, just totally, this is just what happens. When the body is tired, the mind is disturbed, and a disturbed mind is far from collectedness, far from steadiness. So I steadied my mind right within, settled, unified, and concentrated it. Why is that? So my mind would not be disturbed. So he's really looking in the same for thoughts of non-ill will or metta and thoughts of harmlessness or compassion. Really just exploring them equally with steady awareness and seeing they don't lead to harm from me or another or both. They don't cause vexation. They don't block wisdom. Not a theory, but watching it in his own mind and heart. And in the seeing of that, And this is what's called the the wisdom of seeing. oh, this is how the harmful ones act, leading to vexation. As I kept on noticing, as I kept on looking, they subsided. And you've all seen that sometimes, but then we assume it should always subside immediately. That's extra. But seeing how, through the steady awareness, the unwholesome is not being fed. It may have a momentum and keep going. And there's times when it's kind of half equal because the mind moves so fast. Like when we act from the greed but bring awareness along. It's like, you know, in the mind, the motivation is kind of flipping back and forth between greed and awareness, greed and awareness, but because the mind moves so quickly. But as the awareness gets stronger and the wisdom stronger, the Kaleisha actually subsides in that moment. And the reverse is also true. As awareness is really aware of non-clinging, let's say that for renunciation or generosity, or metta, or friendliness, or non-ill will, the awareness of it, the wisdom that seeing that it causes no harm, actually feeds the wholesome. We don't have to think, oh, here this is, let me hold on to it, let me whip it up, let me get it stronger. We can really trust that through the steadiness of recognition of awareness, it's like Guy Armstrong likes to say, and it's for, the way he thinks of it is a beneficent universe. When I first heard him say it, I'm going, what, a beneficent universe? You look around? But he said, no, because this is the laws of how it works. When you notice the wholesome with awareness, with wisdom, that naturally feeds it. When there's wisdom in the heart and mind, these um, unskillful motivations naturally begin to transform. It's not an act of will. So this is really a wonderful thing. So that's what I want to talk a bit about. Where that came from. So one way it happens, as I just described from the Buddha, just by steady awareness, we see this causes suffering. And the transformation is the wise mind goes, yeah, it just puts it down. This doesn't make sense. When we really see that clinging is causing suffering in a particular situation, like the holding the hot potato, right? You don't have to think about it. Should I put it down? I mean, the, the trick is not to throw it with aversion. The trick, oh yeah, let me just put that down. It's like that. But another thing, that this is, this is how I look at it too, what allows for the clear seeing to come, to, for these calatias to kind of drop away, is that the wholesome, the beautiful qualities of renunciation, which I'll talk about in a moment, because you may not think of that right away as a beautiful quality, as a happy quality, but because we don't understand what it really is. Um, renunciation, loving kindness, compassion. These are qualities that can... Really arise from a broad inclusive awareness when we're still caught in the as uh Islamist said the the narrow bandwidth of it's all about me that we may have the thought I want to do compassionate action, but we really can't see much beyond our nose, you know it's like we want to do it, and we we think we want to do it, but that's when we can't we can't really see what's clear we can't really get a broad, more accurate perception. But just widening the perception to take in the whole show, it changes everything. This again from the Dalai Lama, this is part of that same quotation. Since we are all dependent, he's talking about the universal interdependence, which is a way of saying not separate me self, it's just all arising experience. Since we are all dependent on each other and all other beings want to be happy and not suffer, just as I do, my personal happiness and suffering are inextricably linked with those of others. In other words, there's no way we can act out of greed and hatred without affecting others as well as we affect ourselves. Just as the Buddha said, the affliction of ourselves, the affliction of others. And seeing that, this narrow bandwidth opens up And even if you're not even acting, but the motivation shifts, it can shift the whole picture. Tell you a little story. Really a non-doing story, but just a shift of inner motivation. A long, long time ago, too long ago, I was traveling by myself on an overnight train in India. And so I had a I had a sleeping berth, but not a private one. I don't know, second or third. So I had a berth with which is just like a shelf with three other berths in that same little but I hadn't thought to get the ladies car. So it was me and three guys on this berth. And I, you know, I didn't feel totally comfortable. I mean there's a million other people on the train. You're definitely not isolated. And in the daytime there's all people in there, but then they all leave and it's just me and these three guys. So they were just lying there. They weren't bothering me at all. But you know, there's different every different culture has different kind of ways that are appropriate. So lying staring at me isn't really rude there. Whereas here, if they're all lying staring at me, you know. But anyway, so I was extremely self-conscious and a bit aversive, a bit aversive. And, uh, you know, so I just turned to the wall, but I really just felt impinged on and not scared. I mean, I knew nothing was going to happen, but I really was aversive and impinged on and me and they leave me alone and in my space and blah. They're in my space. So I was like that for a bit of the night. And then at some point, somewhere, just something in my mind shifted. and I said, okay, this is our space. We're just all here. This is our, that was all. But it was a real, that thought was coming out of the shift in the motivation rather than saying it and trying to rationalize and pretend that I really felt different. You can try that. Sometimes you can talk yourself into it, but usually not. But anyway, I thought, okay, it's our space. That's all I did. I just kept on lying there. And we got up in the morning, and of course their whole families came in, and suddenly there's 25 of us there in the car. in, the, in the, But I hadn't said a word, I hadn't like, oh, it's our space, we're all one, let's shake I hadn't, you know, <laughs> at, at all spoken to anybody. But the whole motivation in my heart mind had changed. So they, got, they brought in their families, they got really friendly, where they hadn't spoken to me before either. And they were like buying me little, you know, sweets when we stopped at the stations and giving me chai. And, and it, the whole thing was a completely different experience. It was really, you know, such an interesting lesson. So, of how it's a natural occurrence. Not like I was doing something to be good friends with these guys and do anything. They just kind of felt a different we're all connected. You know, you lie there emanating aversion. <laughs> it's not a secret. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, really, we start to see from this the interconnectedness. And this, again, strengthens these wise motivations, Samasankapa. So I just want to say a little bit about each, because each one could be a huge talk, but I want to say a bit about each. To hopefully you can um, recognize when they're arising in your experience, because they are. They're not some incredibly, you know, esoteric thing, but to notice just as much as you notice the others. So, renunciation might be the one that is the most um, not recognized or not quite recognized as the a really kind of happy state of heart-mind it is, as a motivation, so remember, the motivation is about what's occurring in the chitta, not about the outward appearance. So here we often tend to think of renunciation as a kind of a grim giving up of something we want. So we still have the green, we're giving it up in order to better ourselves, which is, could be one way, but there's suffering in it because we're losing something we love and we just, that's right? You kind of think of it kind of harsh and grim. But the intention of renunciation when it arises in a moment in the chitta, is the abandoning in that moment of the clinging, which is actually an experience of spacious joy and ease and peace. Mm-hmm. And it's not about how much stuff we do or we don't have. Someone said Utejaniya once in a group, they're like kind of idealizing you know, oh, when you left your lay life to become a monk, you know, it must be been su- such a renunciation. Now, you know, there's so little craving. You have so few things, you know, it's really w- all that. He won't put up with stuff like that for a minute. And he said, yeah, all the craving for all the 10,000 things, the same amount of craving gets narrowed down into two objects, you know. <laughs> Food and, then, and then robes. But really, see, it's not the amount of objects, it's the amount of craving." in the heart-mind, so really looking at that and seeing. But noticing here, in the times when that, the, the craving is put down, notice the space that opens up. Notice the joy that kind of lives a... And, and as one does live a simple life, if that's what one does, that's not what it has to be, but it's a real renunciation. It's a kind of a simplicity that comes from a, a real joy and happiness. And ease. If you're like renouncing and wearing, you know, the, what is it, a hair shirt and stuff, and you're just filled with aversion and grimness, that's not Sama Sankapa, that's aversion and grimness. So it's really looking to see. So here, just explore quite a few people. The dining room is apparently a wonderful place for insight, because so many people mention it, I've had similar experiences, or like the ex- example I just gave, but quite a few people in different ways have really enjoyed, so they said, playing with noticing how real craving is coming up around any particular kind of food, either whether they thought they shouldn't have it, like like the, the woman who, the example I gave, or they just you know, thought they should only have one helping instead of five, or, you know, whatever it is. Or... But watching how the craving came up and all the different responses. But first there's that joy. This isn't renunciation. This is the, the joy, kind of a wisdom in, in the steady awareness of just watching how it's working. And having the permission to go get the food or not go get the food takes a pressure off that lets you really explore, okay? Okay. So, but then there's times when you hold yourself back, you don't go get it, but it's that tightness, you know, it's a kind of a, it's a working towards renunciation, but you can still see there's the wanting, the tightness, the, you know, you go, what are you talking about? This is a real joyful thing. I don't think so. (laughs) And then there's, can be, and you'll expect a moment when just naturally the craving falls away. You know, we think, well, I just don't want that. Notice that. A lot of the time we think, oh, the craving's falling away. We go to the next thing. But inhabit with awareness that moment of renunciation. Notice the ease, the spaciousness, the coolness that comes in the heart and mind when the kalatia dissipates. You know, the kalatias are like hot, the mind is burning. It dissipates, we go, okay, on to the next, it's okay now. No, stop and notice that, stay really, pr- ah, it's like this. Just like this in this moment, nothing in excess, nothing is lacking. That's a moment of renunciation, of ease. From that can come a natural generosity that's also a joy of the heart. You know, it's kind of the next step, not a should. But do you see how it can be easy to skip over it, wait for the next Kalatia to come? Mm -hmm. Really notice it, because bringing that same steady awareness to the wholesome that we're bringing to the unwholesome feeds the wholesome. It strengthens it, not in a holding-on way, but really, oh, yeah, yeah, comfort ease. Non-clinging feels like this. And it becomes more familiar, more trustworthy. It can, in, and it's not something we hold on to, but every time we recognize it's strengthening that habit, if you want to look at it that way. So really take some time. When you start to feel an ease, some kalatia, it could be the same with ill will or aversion, is easing out. They'll say, okay, thank God, you know, that's over. Stop. Notice the heart-mind that's free of kalatia, at that point, totally important, over and over and over, because this is really what's changing the habit and and bringing in the confidence. This same sense of just simply not being so engrossed in me, which is, is how it feels when there's wholesomeness. It just opens up. So in terms of renunciation, that's really where the opening to not just seeing what I need and what I want, but what's the situation in the bigger picture. It could be in the dining room where you really want another biscuit, say, and you can see there's only three left and there's still five people to come. And not as should be. I want. Oh, there's five people. Oh, okay. The The, the wanting just falls away. There's a natural ease of seeing this is really what's needed in this situation. That's wisdom. That isn't self-referential. You get a feeling for that. And that can go all the way up to the whole, the environment, the shortage of everything that people need in the world, and noticing when we're overusing without, I mean, we'll all have ideas about how one should behave, but really noticing in oneself when we're using too much, what we feel is more heat than I need, or more water than I need, or more whatever than I need. And not as should, but that sense of no clinging. It's not all about me in the mind. It's just naturally, oh, I don't need this much. There can be more. I don't need to use this much electricity. You think, well, no one else is going to get it. I might as well use it. That's kind of the rational collation Doing. Oh, I don't need so much electricity. Just turn it off. That's the renunciation. Wise motivation of renunciation, and it's a sense of, again, as the Dalai Lama says, we're in the, in the wider picture, the sense of connectedness. You know, you say, oh, I'm connected with all beings. It's just not that inner reference so strong. So to say a little about a non-ill will is how metta is described. So again, I'm just trying to give a flavor of each of these so you recognize Ill will we know, okay? We're learning to recognize ill will. Metta, sometimes, again, not mistaken, but a limited idea of metta may be making it a little too amazing, you know? I radiate, when the Buddha talks about radiating metta in all directions, we could easily think, it should be this amazing force of love moving out to all beings, you know? And so... I love the way Ajahn Sumedho likes to talk about metta. He says, What I call metta is the ability to witness the unpleasant in a person or a thing or any situation or an aspect of oneself, to witness the unpleasant, to be really present, without creating anything around it. You get a sense of that? In other words, it's like this. Just being purely present, non-ill will, is actually metta, friendliness. Much more available than you maybe would have thought, right? Non-ill will. Or as James Baldwin said, uh, an enemy is someone whose story we have not heard. When there's ill will, we're not hearing anything. And that could even be the story of some difficult emotion or physical experience we're feeling. Metta is just this quality of presence without pushing away, without adding a story, just fully with it. So meeting your own experience, hearing it, hearing the story, that's a kind of metta, that's a kind of non-ill will. And so hopefully you can see how that arises here on retreat, of course in daily life, but I mean here, Many people say, I've seen it myself, how easy it is that somebody, and it's nothing personal to anyone, but usually somebody does something that bugs us. Maybe just once, and the mind makes the thing, right? But the ill will is just that, that feeling of negativity that comes up. And then if you're exploring it with awareness, as the Buddha did, you see the thoughts that come from it? Hopefully here mostly not actions. That's why silence is so wonderful. It really it lets us explore this stuff without being afraid we're going to really do say something that we'll really regret in like just because the ill will was taken over at that moment. But seeing how if we just keep feeding the story, the ill will, and every time that we see that person, that's what we think. We can see how the seeing triggers the ill will, and then we think about it, and then. Say it's a sound that's being made, then we hear a similar sound, and without even looking, we assume it's that person, even though it's a sound everybody makes, right? That that sound that comes from everybody is all about that. And you, you see how it builds up. But then when we witness the unpleasant in a person, or a thing, you start by just witnessing the unpleasantness of the ill will in our own heart and mind when it's arising. Instead of jumping away from it to blaming the other person, or jumping away from it to blaming ourselves for having ill-will. Both of those are not just witnessing the ill-will with awareness. Oh, it's like this. Ill-will feels like this. When you can be with that, then when the person heaves into view, you're able to just witness seeing. And when we're not creating anything around it, when awareness is just simple awareness we've been talking about, all of a sudden the perception spreads out, right? This happens to me all the time and what I was perceiving is arrogant, or whatever my mind was making up, because we don't know what's going on with anyone else, and we don't even know what's going on with ourselves, and we think we know what's going on with other people. And when this spreads out, and just witnessing the unpleasant behavior without creating anything around <laughs> it, and it's a kind of a connection, that's meta too. It's connect, almost all, I'm not trying to talk myself out of the ill will. I mean, that's better than just being with the ill will, but I'm not trying to. But you just perceive the perception sh- shifts, you know. You see something you didn't see, and what was, I was perceiving as arrogance, I said, oh, wow, to behave like that, you just get this, that's a lot of suffering. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of suffering. So that's actually compassion. Compassion comes up in response to suffering, metta's connection with whatever's going on. They're both very close together. It just arises naturally, right? You don't have to make it. Notice that. Really knows we tend to okay. Well, that's good. I had a moment of compassion, and then we sometimes think to really bring full awareness and inhabit that is a kind of an ego thing. You know, I don't want to give a lot of attention. I think I'm such a compassionate person, but I really need to notice how much ill will there was, and don't forget about that. But if the ill will's gone, really notice it's gone. Notice the goneness. Don't keep holding on to it in memory. And notice what this simple friendliness of metta or compassion, which is more the kind of like the connection with the suffering, kind of the quivering of the heart, but it's not aversion. Let that be there in your awareness. Really notice, again, the coolness. Compassion is a beautiful emotion, even though it's in the face of suffering. Notice the coolness of non-kalesha. Notice the spacious, all-inclusive quality, that it's not all about me and what you're doing and how it affects me. It's, oh, it's like this now. Me and you and the whole situation, it's like this now. And then it can be that something somebody's doing that seems to impact on your activities and get in your way, and suddenly you say, oh, that's a lot of suffering. And without even thinking about it, I just get out of the way, I don't need this, they can have it. But it's not, a, it's not an aversive thing, it's really... Let it go. And there's this sense of love and happiness. But in the whole situation, they need it more than I do. And you don't, that's not a big ego thing. You could turn it into, but then it won't feel like happiness. It won't feel coolness. And then just notice that. But do you you see how these little moments arise so much on retreat? I see some nods, so thank God you're seeing some of it. (laughs) And this isn't just a little nothing. This is really important, really important to notice Because this is the path. The steady awareness that we've been going on, the steady, steady awareness free from Kalasha, how that awareness is is meeting each moment of experience, that is the path of non-harming, of metta, of renunciation. The reason those habits start to grow and transform is because in any moment, how the... The chitta, the mind, the awareness is meeting the moment is the path. There's only this moment. So when we're when we're meeting difficulty or greed with this clear awareness that isn't filled with difficulty or greed, in that moment you could say it might manifest as metta or compassion or renunciation, but it is actually wholesome that's feeding that. In that moment we're cultivating, we, the, the wholesome is being cultivated in that quality of steady awareness. So, you know, when we say that the awareness has the qualities of metta, of compassion, of non-clinging, it does. Not that you can necessarily see it, but right there, just how we meet the moment. One teacher said, not a Buddhist teacher, but he said, in every moment of activity, the heart-mind is committing to something. The question is what? That's really what we look at in this moment. What's the attitude in the heart-mind? What's it committing to? And how we see internally is how we act externally. Two things, from Martin Luther King and Eleanor Roosevelt. I was at, this year, last year, anyway, in Atlanta. So I have family in Atlanta. And we visited the new uh, Museum of Civil and Human Rights, which is really a very profoundly... Touching and interesting. And uh, so, one thing from Martin Luther King nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of the spirit. You not only refuse to shoot a person, you refuse to hate them. So, that's what we're doing, only the reverse. We see you refuse to hate them is what leads to you refuse to shoot them. And this was from Eleanor Roosevelt, which they had, like, up in in the museum, in the human rights section. Because there was different things about past, really, human rights, horrible stuff in this country and around the world, and also present. She says, Where, after all, do universal human rights begin? In small places, close to home. So close and so small that they cannot be seen on any maps of the world. I'd say, you know, here. Yet they are the world of the individual person. Without concerted citizen action to uphold them close to home, we shall look in vain for progress in terms of human rights in the larger world. That's what we're doing, you know? That's how it connects. So notice again here... When there's a shift of attitude, so you've noticed the little ones I've said, but sometimes in a bigger picture, when there's a shift of motivation, of attitude, how that can completely change the sense, the effect of the action. So I'll give you a couple examples, one from Mingyur Rinpoche and one from Bhikkhu Analyo, both very different monks. So Analyo said, very classical Theravada study monk. He's talking about practice in a retreat setting and how it can seem very self-involved and separate and selfish. But he says, Practice in a, in a retreat setting turns into compassionate activity through the transforming power of one's aspiration to awaken for the benefit of others as well as one's own benefit. Check it out. When you notice you tune into that aspiration, then going through the same outer actions can feel so different. Can feel so different, and it can even motivate to action that you wouldn't do, and even in little ways. This is a, seems like a silly little example, but it really, from my own practice, it really stuck with me. This um, I was sitting in Burma this past winter, and I was just just doing some walking on a on a little path in a kind of a wooded area. And there 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 weren't many people staying at this place. It wasn't crowded, and there was some I don't even remember what something like sharp some rubble right in the middle of the path. Which, but, and I was just very calm and peaceful and I would come, I would see it, I'd walk around it and I, wasn't, I didn't have a version, I wasn't thinking about it at all just quite a quantumist but just in my own, you know, doing my own thing and suddenly the thought just popped up well this isn't bothering you but what if somebody else comes along later and really hurts themselves on this and I hadn't had that thought went, oh, and immediately I picked it up and moved it it was just like a nothing doing, you're doing the obvious picked it up, moved it and kept walking I said, oh that's so interesting Because that time when it was just about me, it didn't bother me, never occurred to me to move the thing. As soon as the kind of connectedness, friendliness, metta thought came up, there was immediate action, just doing the obvious. So when we think it's aversion and clinging and self interest that leads to action, just notice metta, compassion, wisdom actually are extremely strong motivators for action. From Mingyur. So he's Tibetan. And there's a great emphasis on bodhicitta, which means cultivating the, the awakened heart-mind, which is the practicing for, to enable to wake up in order to help wake up all beings. That's bodhicitta. So he says, when bodhic, intention, what our intention is, can transform neutral activities into wholesome, into positive ones. He says, sleeping, for example. Huh? Do you think that could be a really wholesome, positive? When we go to bed at night with the mind of bodhicitta, with a mind that aspires, we aspire that may our sleep be the cause of an increased capacity to help all beings <laughs> attain enlightenment. <laughs> Try it. It changes everything. Really. When you go to eat, you go, well, may, you know, f- really tuning into gratitude when you're eating for a little bit. And then now I've just started saying to myself, you know, may... May all beings have food. May all beings have drink. May, the, may this food have be, give my mind and body strength to be able to serve myself and all beings, or something, you know. And sometimes, yada, 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 let me eat. And sometimes you really say it, and it, it transforms everything. We can do that with anything, with everything, as we go through the day. So that's, you know, you say the thing, and then you drop it. Don't be berated. But just notice, sometimes it does nothing, Sometimes it actually brings up that shift of motivation and then just play with seeing how that, how that feels. So we need to get as comfortable and trusting with these as we are with greed and aversion, with fear and self-interest. I think that's enough. Just to say that the noticing, as I was saying, really builds confidence in the understanding which strengthens all the five faculties to wisdom. The wisdom again strengthens the confidence and it keeps on going. So that because as we practice and get to more and more subtleties, we're also noticing more and more, we're more sensitive to the suffering in our own heart and mind. So it takes a, a continuing deepening commitment to ourselves to keep being willing and interested to show up for the difficult. So it's like a cycle, you know, as we understand more, the confidence and the willingness to keep showing up deepens and they keep on serving each other. So may we all practice for the benefit of ourselves and all living beings. Thank you so much. Appreciate what you're doing with your life here in these nine days. It's amazing on the face of this planet. Let's sit quiet for a moment. So <clears throat> opening to awareness in whatever way or posture best. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.